Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Mickey, you're listening to Wikipedia, and today I am so excited to bring to you my conversation that I had with Emeritus Professor Dr. Don Lehman. So, you know I'm a geek, and you know that I bang on all the time about the importance of dietary protein. Now, we have interviewed Dr. Eric Helms, spoke about protein. I've talked to Cliff Harvey, to Karen Zinn about the importance of protein, and of course, Professor Stu Phillips, who is another world expert in protein metabolism. And Professor Don Lehman was one of the pioneers in protein metabolism. And so today we talk all about the importance of protein, what we know in terms of recommended dietary intake values versus actual requirements for protein, we talk about the disconnect between the environmental cost of animal protein versus what we might hear out there in the public space. We talk about vegetarian sources of protein and the implications of following a vegetarian diet and how to protect that. And also some of the newer research coming out about the importance of the gut microbiome in terms of protein metabolism. So for those of you who don't know who Professor Lehman is, he is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And he's recently retired. So he has been a leader in the research about protein, nutrition for athletic performance, obesity, diabetes, of which we discuss as well, and cardiovascular disease health. And he has over 120 peer-reviewed publications. He's received numerous awards for his research from the American Society for Nutrition and the National Institutes for Health and for his nutrition teaching. He has been an associate editor of Journal of Nutrition Education and Behaviour and on the editorial boards of Nutrition and Metabolism and Nutrition Research in Practice. He has an extensive consulting background, including work with NASA, the Shriners Children's Hospital, the US Air Force, plus numerous food companies and organizations. He earned his doctorate in human nutrition and biochemistry at the University of Minnesota. And so we sort of start our conversation there. You can find Professor Lehman over on Twitter, actually, is one of the easiest places to find him, and I'll pop his contact information in the show notes. Now, before we get on to today's episode, I just want to remind you that if you haven't already and you want to support the show, please head on to Apple Podcast or any podcast platform that allows you to leave a review and leave a five-star rating. That would be amazing. It would just help the reach of the podcast and continue to have it grow and let other people enjoy the content of Wikipedia. Amazing. And also my recipe access portal 12 bucks a month less than a coffee a week if you have that the ability for you to ask me questions to help you individualize your nutrition approach access to over 650 recipes which are updated regularly 
We have member-only Facebook forums and Facebook Lives and also my weekly email as well. And you can sign up to that over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, on the sign-up page. However, for now though, get a pen out or commit to memory all of the most awesome practical tidbits that you'll get from Professor Don Lehman. It is my on my bucket list because I I'm, I run and I would love to do the Chicago Marathon. Like that would be amazing to me. Which is this weekend? Is it? Yeah, I met the uh, I met the uh, president of Bank America a couple of days ago. Uh, I was out in Las Vegas and uh, he's in charge of it. So uh, yeah. Oh wow! And I'm do you know I'm it, so I live right in the middle of downtown Chicago, so it runs around me on both sides actually. <laughs> yeah. Have you Don? I've done. Um, oh, now what can I call you? Whatever you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Don, Don, Don is perfectly fine. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. It's, do you know what I, I think it is, is I've watched many of Dr. Gabriel Lyon's YouTube yeah. clips. Yeah. And um, in fact, I'm speaking to her next week, which I'm just so wow. stoked to do. But my, um, what I was going to say is I've done New York. I did it in 2019 and oh, wow. it was Impressive. the most amazing experience I think of a marathon I've ever had because the whole city just got behind it like and I was so surprised and I'm like New York is so big and so happening why do they even care but they care so much and it was just an amazing thing to be a part of is, is Chicago I've never like run I've never run a marathon but Chicago is pretty and I've heard people say that that run marathons that Chicago is the prettiest of all the marathons oh nice yeah well yeah. that's it's definitely on our bucket list and you know fingers crossed that things get back to that sort of sense of of normal I suppose Gabrielle and I talk almost every day so like she says on the uh, podcast we're always talking <laughs> oh, she like she is. She I like obviously, well, obvious to me. I knew of your work, and I'm not sure how I then sort of stumbled across Gabrielle. Probably just a podcast, and I just love it because there are so few women out there that speak about protein with the same determination and grit that Gabrielle does, and and complete like non-negotiable. We need to yeah. be resistance training. We need to be eating protein, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts. And I just love that attitude. <laughs> yeah, she's she's great fun. So, um, Professor Layman, Don, I just feel so privileged to be able to have the time to speak to you today. It is such an honor to have you on my show. And the thing is, is that I will be asking you your sort of bread and butter, your protein 101, what you talk about all the time. So I hope that you are still after but I I do believe you're 71. Is that correct that is correct <laughs> a, 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 uh, uh, so you, you've been 50 years in this but obviously you still have a passion for it because you're still out there providing education and information yeah i uh i first started working with protein and amino acids when i was doing my master's degree so that would have been like 1972 <laughs> oh. 
probably about 20 years before you were born. <laughs> oh, just five, but thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I would love to get actually from you first is let's, can we start with sort of the history of the recommended dietary intake values for protein? And this is something which people get really confused about how much protein they should be eating. And I feel this is in part because the RDIs are set at one point. Uh, the protein experts suggest it to be something different. So when people hear high protein diet, they start getting confused about how much they need. So how even were those RDIs set for protein in the first place? One really has to realize the level of politics and nutritional requirements. Um, so your, your specific question, really the origins of the RDAs, um, minimum daily requirements back in the old days was World War II when the United States and countries were confronted with how to feed millions of fighting individuals, men and women across great distances, oceans. Uh, how much food did you actually have to get to them? So they really went about trying to establish the minimum. And that's really where it started from. And, and in those days, we didn't even know all the essential amino acids very well. We just mm. sort of had a number for protein. And so that's really where it came from. And the way that that could be established back in the you know, 1940s was nitrogen balance. Yeah. And so we basically did titrations, you know, how, how, as you lowered protein and lowered protein, at what point could the individual no longer come into some kind of balance? And so we got really a minimum number. And that's sort of been around forever. And frankly, it hasn't changed much. That's the minimum to keep you alive. Yeah. But, you know, in modern society, I'm not sure that staying alive is really the gold standard. <laughs> you know, I think we want a level of health probably above survival. Yeah. And in the 2002, the Institute of Medicine of the United States, National Academy of Sciences, decided that we should move beyond just minimum requirements to a range. And so they established what were called DRIs, dietary reference intakes. And that goes from the minimum RDA to some upper limit. And so within that range, people should be able to make choices. And for things like vitamin C, we kind of understand that. We know that 60 milligrams of vitamin C will prevent scurvy, mm. but people aren't really after that. Scurvy is not very prevalent, mm. but with COVID and everything else, people are taking five, 10 times that RDA. They may be taking a gram per day because they think it helps their immune system. Mm. But we need to think of protein like that too. The RDA is the minimum to prevent a deficiency that we can measure but almost all of the science suggests that we should have a level higher than that, especially as we get older. Yeah. And, and what we is, become what less is, efficient. What is the issue with nitrogen balance studies? The nitrogen balance studies really just measure kind of the minimum to prevent a deficiency. And it's not very, I mean, they're not really very sensitive. You know, one of the lines I like using is that talking about protein is talking about, is like talking about a vitamin pill. We don't really need the pill. We need the 12 vitamins inside the pill. Yeah. And we don't really need protein. Protein is just a food. We need the 20 amino acids inside the protein and particularly the nine essential. And of those, there are four that are almost always limiting in food supply, especially in plants. Mm. 
Yeah. And so when we think about protein requirements, we really need to think about what's the minimum level of lysine and leucine and methionine and tryptophan that we need to get. And when you start doing that calculation, you get some pretty different numbers and you, you get a really different view of foods. Mm. So with the nitrogen balance studies, they were just looking at nitrogen and they weren't assessing the levels of amino acids that people were having to be able to survive, essentially. Yeah, it's a minimum to survive doing a short-term study. And, and we know that the body can adapt to starvation types of things in the short term, but in the long term, that's not equivalent to optimum health. Optimum health. Yeah. So if you're, you know, if you're asking, you know, what's the minimum level to survive for the next month, the RDA will tell you that. Yeah. But if you're asking how to be a healthy 60-year-old, uh, the RDA won't tell you that. No, and this is, you know, it's so interesting, Don, when I look at the RDA and RDI here in New Zealand, so that's it's slightly different um, how they describe it, but essentially they are the same values. This information that you're sort of sharing with us, this is actually has been out there for decades in terms of the amount of protein is, that we optimally need to sort of thrive, yet it's never apparent in these kind of food guidance systems and these recommendations that then are sort of public facing for people to read. What is your take on that? Why is it that, that this is just ignored by those that sort of set the rules? I think that, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago that there's a lot of politics that roll into this now. If you think about the protein range, protein is the most expensive and most difficult part of the diet to get. Mm. And if you start looking at foods and you look at the minimum levels, and then you start looking at optimum levels, which most people regard about twice the RDA, something around 1.6 grams per kg. If you're doing a vegan diet, there's no way to get to that number. Mm -hmm. You simply can't get to it. So the only way you can even approach it would be to start using ultra processed products. You'd have to go to isolated proteins like soy or pea or something and create ultra processed foods that have very long ingredient lists, totally unnatural. And so you're kind of stuck. And the other aspect of it is the food industry makes almost no money selling protein. They make, you know, animal products like eggs and milk and meats pretty much go directly from the farm to the grocery store and require refrigeration the entire time. Mm. Where grain products, you can basically go out and buy a cheap bushel, peck, whatever of grains, process the heck out of it, put it in a bag or a box with a two-year shelf life and stick it on the grocery store shelf. Um, the, grain, the cereal companies, the grain companies, uh, the food companies make vastly more money selling you grains than they do selling you animal foods. And so all of the things in the system and even, even the pharmaceutical companies, they make a lot of money selling you statins, which are based on the belief that cholesterol is bad for you. Mm. So if you look at it, everything in the system is geared to be anti-protein. Because yeah. if you really go for a higher protein levels, none of these theories hold up. Yeah. And it's interesting you say higher protein levels, because when I talk to people about protein diets and, and you know, we're discussing the types of foods I suggest they eat and they're like, 
oh, that sounds like a really high protein diet. So even our perception of what is adequate and sufficient is really skewed based on all of those things that you've just talked about. Yeah, the the average intake in the United States for protein is about 90 grams per day for men and 70 for women, which Mm. is actually pretty close. It's just barely above the RDA. It works out to be about 0.9 to 1.0, where which are just above, you know, the 0.8 RDA grams per kg, where all of the protein recommendations from protein experts are in the 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kg range. To me, that is a normal range, but it's actually higher than what's currently consumed. Yeah. For me, when I think about high, you know, some of the things I hear with athletes, I start thinking of 2.0 and above that. Yeah. Uh, There really is very little science to show that a value above say 1.8 grams per kg has any benefit. And I personally don't recommend it. I know one of my colleagues, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who works a lot more with high-end fitness and, and uh, you know, military individuals, very high stress, high intent, you know, physical individuals. She recommends, you know, in the 2.0, range. Mm. But again, those are very unique individuals. Yeah. And, and I have heard you discuss with Dr. Gabriel Lyon about sort of protein recommendations and requirements. And I, for what it's worth, I tend to veer up in that higher range of protein because often I work with either athletes or fat loss clients. And so proteins value in terms of muscle protein synthesis is one thing. And from a practitioner perspective, it's ability to help regulate blood sugar and appetite control is, is super valuable in in that space. Yeah. I, I mean, there's two categories for protein, you know, choosing your protein intake. One is purely for muscle development. Yeah. And there really isn't any data that suggests above 1.8 grams per kg uh, has a benefit. There's no data for that. You can find studies that will show a benefit at 2.2 or 2.5, but they're usually comparing to 1.0. They're not comparing to 1.8. And, you know, so they're, they're not, it's not really a direct comparison, but the other thing you brought up is the metabolic balance. Mm -hmm. And so if part of your goal is to reduce your carbohydrate intake, then you're confronted with substituting either fat or protein. And I can see a real advantage to substituting more protein. So that's not a muscle effect. That's not a protein synthesis effect. That's a metabolic regulation effect, particularly aimed at carbohydrates and insulin. Yeah. And interesting on that, Don, I understand like, you know, you've spent a lifetime studying protein and have run, I, I, I wouldn't know how many studies clearly, but I know that some of your studies were looking at the metabolic effects of protein for metabolic disease, like obesity. And can you describe its effect on muscle, like protein's effect on muscle? Can you sort of describe some of those studies and some, some of those outcomes that you found that helped you determine protein sufficiency, I suppose? So I've been studying protein and particularly leucine and muscle health forever. But back in the sort of late 90s, we started looking at protein effects on muscle, uh, and then interrelated to insulin and carbohydrate balance. And we started thinking about some of the uh, low-carb diets at that time, like 
Atkins and the you know zone diet and protein power and some of those that were around. And we thought, you know, I think that's really the secret here is that protein has a much higher thermogenic effect. Mm. And the reason for that is actually muscle protein synthesis and that it also reduces the insulin response after the meal. So we created a series of studies aiming at reducing you know, weight loss control and also diabetes, at that point only pre-diabetes uh, metabolic syndrome. And we showed that if you substitute protein for carbohydrate, gram for gram, in an isocaloric diet, uh, that you'll have a dramatic effect on on changing body composition, you spare protein, you spare muscle while you're losing more fat, you increase satiety. So people are less hungry. They're, they're more stable on it. Um, and they seem to lose more calories, even though they burn more calories, they have a higher resting energy expenditure at the same calorie intake. So all of the pieces sort of fell into place. And and frankly, we ran some of the first reduced carb, higher protein diet studies that were really, you know, carefully controlled diet studies. Mm. And as I understand it, they weren't like extremely low carbohydrate. Oh, not at all. We, yeah. I made a decision. I made a decision at the time that I didn't want to sort of get wrapped up in the political debate about keto diets or Atkins diet or whatever. And so basically we said, well, let's use the dietary guidelines and the dietary guidelines for carbohydrate, the RDA, which people talk about the RDA for protein. Well, the RDA for carbohydrates is 130 grams per day. Americans are typically eating 320. So we dropped it down to a hundred. Our goal was to keep everyone below 140 grams of carbs per day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, three to five servings of vegetables, two servings of fruit and one or two servings of bread type carbohydrates per day that balanced the nutritional requirements. So there could be no no criticism of the diet that it wasn't balanced in any way. Yeah. Uh, and so then we replaced that, uh, you know, hundred, well, and they were lower calorie diets. So we were reducing them down to about 1800 calories. So that's part of the reduction of the carbs. And then we substituted the protein out. So we had one group that was eating the RDA at about hundred and 60, I mean, about 65 grams per day, the RDA, and the other group was eating 125, 130 grams per day. Mm. And what we showed was protein sparing, increased fat loss, uh, sparing of muscle, greater satiety, greater compliance, and reduced insulin sensitivity, you know, and reduced and increased insulin sensitivity. So everything that we wanted, you know, came up. The reason we picked 140, I'll just go back to that for Mm. a second. It's kind of important. Uh, If you go through the literature and look at lower carb diets, you'll find that almost any diet that lowers carbohydrate intake below about 140 grams per day will give you about a 30% reduction in triglycerides, which is part of the metabolic syndrome issue. So that actually became uh, a biomarker for compliance. If we went to our subjects and we didn't see them maintaining a 30% reduction in triglycerides, we knew they weren't following the diet. 
Yeah, yeah. And so that to me is sort of the biomarker for low carb. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, if you look at our data versus keto diets like Jeff Folick or Steve Finney or those, you'll find that we got the same weight loss, the same metabolic effects and everything that they got with keto diets. And yet our subjects had much broader diet choices. Yeah. And I feel like protein is often missed in the diet debates if there are diet debates and maybe not so much now, but certainly a couple of years ago, it was either you were high carb or you were high fat and protein was almost um, feared from people who were in that sort of keto space because of keto and longevity space, actually, because one, because of the gluconeogenesis uh, issue that I'm actually going to ask you about in a minute. But, um, and of course the, um, the ability of protein to sort of switch on mTOR is what people are concerned about. Can you sort of address both of those as you understand it and, and with all of your wisdom? Sure. Let's do the longevity mTOR one first. First, the data behind that is rodent studies and epidemiology. So you have to really think about what those mean. Um, if you look at what the data from the epidemiology, one, it's totally confused in calories and carbohydrates. Yep. If you do epidemiology with food intake, what you get is very accurate protein numbers because people buy protein by quantities. You, yeah. If I asked you how many eggs you had yesterday, you'd give me the exact number. But if I, you know, probably not for you, but if I asked most Americans how many carbs they had yesterday, they would miss it by two or 300 grams. They have yep. no clue. Yeah. Um, you know, and the same is with meat. I mean, we buy it by the ounce. You buy food by the ounce. You buy milk by the glass. So protein we have knowledge of, where carbohydrates we have no knowledge of. And all of the epidemiology data that's ever been looked at uh, suggests we miss the calorie number by six to 800 calories. Mm. And it's all carbohydrate, you know, carbohydrate and fat calories. It's not the protein part. So that's the problem with the, with the epidemiology is what people are saying is a protein effect is really the things that people eat with proteins, the, the breads, the French fries, the things of that nature. It's the carbs and the high calories. Mm. If you look at the animal studies, then what you find out is you're using rodents and rodents are ad libitum eaters. Yeah. And so an ad libitum eating rodent is overeating by 40%. So they're just and eating so you, whenever they want. They eat 24 hours a day. If you, if you take an animal, a rodent in the middle of their sleep period, you'll find that they're waking up every couple of hours to eat. Mm. And they have, they will have stomach fill, gut fill 24 hours a day. Mm. So that means that something like mTOR is chronically turned on. And so if you listen to me or a lot of the protein folks, when you talk about protein, we never talk about grazing on protein. Yeah. We don't eat it. We talk about distinct meals, yeah. three or four meals a day, space four to five hours apart, which allows mTOR to be turned on and off. So yeah. what you don't want to do is have it chronically on. And all of the rodent studies that are arguing longevity or cancer, they're all doing it chronically on 24 hours a day. And that's totally misleading. Can you just sort of briefly describe what mTOR is and what the issue would be with it being chronically switched on? So mTOR is considered a growth regulator. So it's a primary regulator of protein synthesis in essentially every tissue. Mm. But 
protein synthesis is regulated in each tissue differently. Mm. Um, let's take two tissues, for example, muscle that you and I are interested in is regulated by an initiation factor known as EIF4, initiation factor four. Uh, but there are probably at least 12 initiation factors. And liver, the primary regulation is based on energy and a factor known as EIF2, which is mm. an energy sensor. And so in the middle of the night, when it's been, you know, six, eight hours since you last ate, your liver still is making protein. Okay. If it's not making protein, you die. Yeah. So it's regulated by energy. As long as you haven't been starving for multiple days, the liver still makes protein. It makes the blood proteins, et cetera. Uh, and most tissues are like that. Muscle, on the other hand, is a very expensive tissue making up about 50% of body protein. It, it only turns on the very expensive protein synthesis machinery when it has everything right. Yep. And everything being right is a balance of amino acids, of energy, glucose, senses AMP kinase, hormones, insulin, IGF-1, and exercise aspects mm. through a molecule known as RED-1. Uh, when those four all properly balanced, muscle will say, okay, we can support turning on protein synthesis, and it triggers a molecule known as mTOR, mm. which selectively turns on certain mRNAs. Mm. It turns on a series of mRNAs that increase capacity to synthesize protein, mm. particularly muscle proteins, the myofibular proteins. So muscle regulation is done very differently than liver or heart or brain or kidney, which have to always be running. Muscle is only turned on when the meal is correct. Okay. And so, and so if you're running around in the woods, for example, our ancient ancestors, and they come upon a blueberry bush, the last thing you want to do is a bunch of blueberry sugar is turn on protein synthesis and muscle yeah. because yeah. you can't support it. Yeah. So it only turns on when you have the protein, the carbs, and the, and the exercise all in the right balance. Why are longevity scientists or not scientists interested in mTOR and its action? You know, I think that mTOR is a important growth regulator. And in some of the cancers, what people have found is you can <clears throat> slow tumor growth by some of the inhibitors of mTOR. So mm -hmm. that made it of interest sort of a, from a pharmaceutical standpoint. And then if you sort of take the next step, the political step, what you'll find is all of the people who are on that side are, are strong vegetarians. Yeah. And so they basically latched onto it as a way to explain something they wanted to argue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So they're sort of they're thinking protein is a, uh, a potent stimulus for mTOR. Therefore, to, in order to inhibit mTOR to slow down growth, to potentially extend life and the life of the cells, we need a low protein approach. Would that sort of follow? Is that potentially yeah. the logic? Yeah. I mean, yeah. For years, we had the argument that you shouldn't eat animal proteins because cholesterol, and that was mm. proved to be false. Mm -hmm. Then it was it was all about saturated fat, and then we realized the saturated fat story is only true if you're eating too many calories. Yep. 
I mean, saturated fat's the only fat the body's capable of producing. So if it's toxic, why did we evolve to do that? Then it was animal welfare. And it turns out people treat animals quite nicely. So now we get things like mTOR and climate change and a TMAO and, you know, other sorts of things, you know, it's sort of like the next level. Well, those didn't work. Let's try this. <laughs> yeah. I find the TMO, TMAO argument quite awkward when we look at the fact that it seems to be present in high amounts after we eat fish, which is, yeah, exactly. which is totally highest, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you, if you believe that theory, then you have to say fish is the highest, there's the biggest risk for heart disease of any food in our food system. So yeah. that doesn't work out very well. No, unfortunately it doesn't. So what I'm hearing from you then Don is in fact, it's, it's a calorie issue more than anything else. It's excess yeah. energy, which actually, if you think about it from a disease perspective, that's pretty much chronic disease in a nutshell. Yeah. If you if you look at all of the chronic diseases, whether it's whether it's obesity or diabetes or heart disease or cancer, any of those, the nutrition link is calories. Yeah. I mean, it's calories and, and somewhere way down the list, it's the kind of calories or maybe some other mi micronutrients. But calories are orders of magnitude more important to that than anything else. So yeah. having a proper weight is the single most best thing you can do in terms of nutrition, you know, your nutrition health. Yeah. And I've heard you talk before about the environmental cost of animal protein, because of course you just mentioned it there that, you know, there are different arguments against incorporating large amounts of animal protein. But as I understand it, you've done quite a bit of research in this yourself. And can you sort of share with us what you, you know, that research and, and what you know of the environmental cost of animal protein? Yeah. I mean, there's no question that agriculture producing food impacts the environment. I mean, it uses the ground, it uses water, it uses the dirt, it, you know, it uses the land. If you look in the United States versus say other places, the United States of greenhouse gas is about a little under 10% in the United States comes from agriculture in total. And something like 55% of that comes from plant agriculture. 45 from animal. And of that, only about 3.6% of the total comes from, from cattle, you know, mm. beef or dairy. And the reason in the United States is that we have a large population with, uh, you know, a lot of transportation, uh, transportation, electricity are by far the biggest issues. And, you know, fossil fuels account for over 80% of greenhouse gases in the United States. Um, so it's a big deal where in New Zealand, I think the, I think agriculture is like 50% because you don't have any people, <laughs> you know, 4.6 yeah. 4. million people versus we have 360 million. Yeah. Uh, you have a 10 million cattle and 60 million sheep. If I have the numbers about right. So <laughs> roughly one, give a, give or take one or two. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, you know, if you look in Brazil, for example, over 25% of their gross national product comes from agriculture and also for export. So they are guilty of destroying huge amounts of Amazon rainforest for production of soybeans and cattle, mm -hmm. which are all destined for shipping to China and, and the European Union. So there are places around the world, Brazil, Indonesia, 
India, China, that have very inefficient agricultures, but places like New Zealand and the United States have very efficient ones. Mm-hmm. And you know, agriculture is not the problem with climate change. We in the United States, we have essentially the same number of cattle that today that we had in 1800, mm-hmm. then we called them buffalo, but today we call them cattle. They're domesticated, but it's the same number of ruminants. Um, where in 1800 we had zero cars and trucks, and now we have something above 360 million. So there's no question the United States is a contributor to greenhouse gas, but it has nothing to do with agriculture. It has everything to do with fossil fuels. When you lay it out like that, it is actually just common sense. When you stop yeah. and think, you're like, yeah, actually, totally. That and, and if you look at agriculture in New Zealand and in the United States, we have huge land masses that can't be don't have the climate to be continuous crop production. We have grasslands. We have things where ruminants can live. Uh, And massive stretches of New Zealand and the United States are both like that. We can't raise we can't raise broccoli and avocados in Kansas. No. <laughs> or you're right, up on a high sort of cliff front type, you know, windy hill yeah. that you'll find anywhere over across Your the country. southern island probably isn't very good for avocados. <laughs> Not actually very good. I came from Dunedin and I don't think I had an avocado until I was about 18. <laughs> yeah. and so, I mean, the people don't realize that in the United States, we import over 50% of our fruits and 25% of our vegetables now. For mm-hmm. us to make a major change in plants, the only thing we actually grow that can be in quantity are, are grains. It's, it's wheat and soybeans, and that's not so, the solution. Mm-hmm. Wheat is one of the worst plant-based proteins you could dream up. Yeah. And yet it, 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 wheat provides 80% of the plant-based protein for the world. Yeah. And it's probably the worst plant-based protein you could dream up. Yeah. See, in in New Zealand, they don't really put much stock in sort of surveying us for our nutrition habits. So the last nutrition survey was done 2008, 2009. And from that, they revealed that 15, that 16% of our calories came from protein. But then if you removed that bread-based protein, just 10% of our calories came from protein. Yeah. Yeah, Yep. So at that 16%, of course, um, and I know that you've spoken before about the uh, utility of percentages to describe sort of dietary recommendations or lack thereof, but at that 16%, they could say, hey, look, you know, we're within our, and over here in Australia, New Zealand, it's acceptable macronutrient distribution range, AMDR. We're in our AMDR of 15 to 25%. So we're sweet. But then when you remove that very low quality plant protein, we are falling short. Yeah. And I mean, you can use it in the United States. We're somewhere between 30 and 40% of our protein comes from plant-based foods. Mm. Uh, The rest comes from animal. But if you look at it from sort of minimum, uh, people who are at the minimum RDA are getting somewhere around, I mean, so the the amount of protein coming from plants is sort of a constant number. It's sort of around 30, 35 grams per day. So if you're going to get 60, it's around half. But if you're going to get 100, all of that extra comes from animal protein because it's just a nutrient-dense form. You can't eat enough plant-based food to get another 50 grams of protein. 
Yeah. So in essence, then if you are plant-based, um, it, it, you know, you eat predominantly plant-based protein, then you need to get a little bit more of it in order to sort of meet your actual requirements. Right. So, you know, if you're, you know, one of the examples I always use in my talks is with wheat. If you're, if you're going, if you're using beef to get your lysine requirement, for example, you only need about five ounces of beef per day because beef is a very rich source of lysine, which mm. translates into about 230 calories. Yeah. But if you're trying to get your lysine requirement from wheat, which is extremely poor source of lysine, you have to eat 130 grams of protein, which translates to about 3,700 calories of flour-based breads and grains. Yeah. So you can't physically eat enough food to get it from poor sources. Mm. And in fact, Don, some of your research came out this year that sort of addressed potentially how vegans may actually not be as deficient in protein as what we would suggest or, or as what we would think, or that was the headline um, of, of what I read. But then of course the, the study was, was, I don't believe it was in humans, but can you sort of describe the importance of the gut microbiome and how this actually might be a protective? That's a, that's an interesting question. It's one that sort of has had been on my mind for a long time. I, I always wondered why, vegetarians and vegans weren't more protein deficient than, you know, you just don't see it that often. Mm. And one of my colleagues, uh, Suzanne Devkota is an expert in the microbiome. So I prompted her, proposed to her that I thought one of the things that might be happening is that individuals who had really good quality vegetarian diets, not junky ones with a lot of processed food and weeds mm. and things, but, you know, ones that were rich in fiber and really good quality vegetarian diets, that the fibers might actually be changing the gut microbiome in a way that the, the person would become more efficient with amino acids or that mm. the bugs, in fact, were actually generating essential amino acids. Mm. So we ran that study actually in mice um, where we gave them different kinds and different amounts of fiber at a very low protein diet. So we, we sort of lowered the protein diet to where they started to show a deficiency. And we used a, a molecule known as FGF21, which is uh, a symbol of, it's a signal of a, what we call an integrated stress response. It shows a low protein diet. And so we got to the level where we got the FGF 21 and then we did these diets. And what we found was that over time, the mice would actually change their gut microbiome to look more like a ruminant cow. We actually developed bugs that would synthesize the essential amino acids. Uh, and, and we basically uh, showed that it would moderate, the, it, it, it reduced the FGF21, it reduced the deficiency symptom. So what we showed was that fiber would help the vegetarian to become more efficient with the protein use. Yeah. Basically, uh, the gut learned to scavenge nitrogen that's in the diet, whether it was yeah. come from digestive enzymes or nitrogens that were just in the food supply. And one of the interesting things that we actually haven't published yet, so don't tell anybody, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> is that when you buy cellulose just commercially, uh, it's not very pure. Mm. 
And one of the things we talk about in protein is that in plant sources, protein is not very bioavailable because the amino acids are bound to fiber. Well, when you buy cellulose, that's what you find is that it's about 5% nitrogen. Mm. And so what we found is that when you fed more cellulose to the uh, protein deficient animals, they actually were able to scavenge that and turn it into amino acids. Oh, amazing. So Don, <laughs> you, know, you talk about sort of recycling nitrogen and, and things like that. So what implications could this have for adults who follow a vegetarian vegan diet or also um, people in the older age bracket as well? Like, is there a, a difference as to how this might impact on their dietary approach? You know, it's, Again, this the, the research we did was proof of concept. So yeah. it was with rodents. So, you know, we can't extrapolate too far from that. But what we do know is that young adults, you know, kind of pre-45, uh, can become vegetarian pretty easily and they seem to maintain it. And so, you know, if they have a healthy vegetarian diet, that may be part of the answer. However, as you get older, what you'll find is that it's much harder to be vegetarian. And you'll find that those individuals tend to have more muscle mass problems, more bone problems. And because I don't think, you know, as we get older, our efficiency of protein use goes down. And so you actually need increasing amounts as you get into your 50s, 60s, 70s. And I don't think that the bugs can keep up with that. Um, So I think that it may be part of the issue you know, why a 30 year old vegetarian seems to be able to get by on very low protein. Uh, But I don't think it's an answer for a 65 year old. Mm. From this proof of concept study, are there other studies being planned, which might have a look to see if that mechanism exists? And like, can you run a study like that? Um, Yeah, we have we have a, a number of studies ongoing. So hopefully in the next, whatever, six months to a year, we'll have uh, chapter two of some of these stories. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Now you raise um, a good point about aging and the sort of the lower efficiency that comes from eating protein. And of course you will get this question all the time, I'm sure, but what do we know about the amount of protein that is optimal at each meal? The response to protein would be uh, a curve that will go up sharply and then begin to plateau. And Mm. so you want to be in that range where it's beginning to plateau. Um, We think that if you're using a high quality protein, like whey protein, for example, you'll trigger the mTOR response. You'll have enough leucine and essential amino acids to trigger the mTOR response somewhere around 25 grams. Mm. And then it begins to plateau off. And so if, for example, you're doing a weight loss study where you want to get the biggest effect for the fewest calories, Mm. we always use 30 to 35 grams of protein. Okay. But if you're trying to be a maximum muscle builder, you know, an elite athlete, um, we think there's probably benefit well up into the 40s. So we always, I personally always use an upper limit of about 55, 50, 55 grams. So I think that's the range. Uh, If you're talking high quality protein, 25 to 55. If you're talking lower quality protein, you probably need to move those numbers just by about a fact about 10. So the bottom would be maybe 35 and the upper would be 65 or something. Mm. You need to move it up by about 10 just because of the lower quality. 
the range for a meal, you probably get the maximum benefit for the least protein somewhere right around the 30 to 35 gram lumber, which is the number you'll tend to see in a lot of research. And the, the origin of that is really, if you assume that in a mixed diet, and at the time we were working with diets that had about 70% animal protein, 30% plant, that mixture would typically have about 8% of the protein would be leucine. Mm. And 8% of 30 grams gives you 2.5 grams of leucine. And that's the number it was based on. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. The issue is how do you get two and a half to three grams of leucine? Well, you need 30 to 35 grams of a mixed diet. Yeah. And then how does that change as we get older? So if we're thinking, if that's sort of a recommendation for yeah. maybe younger adults, I say younger adults. Actually, but... Yeah, actually, actually the aging isn't what you expect. So mm. up in, when you're growing up through 25, uh, maybe 30, your protein synthesis is heavily driven by hormones. Mm -hmm. And so a small meal, 15, 20 grams will actually stimulate muscle protein synthesis in a 16 year old. Mm -hmm. But once you get beyond 30, and I don't know where that line is, uh, Doug Patton Jones and I did a study with 37 year olds. And so we see it there. So somewhere between 30 whatever, after 30, you now become sensitive to the protein amount at the meal. Yeah. And as far as we know, that leucine effect is the same for a 35 year old or a 65 year old. Okay. So your efficiency is going down with aging, but the leucine and the leucine trigger becomes more important, but we don't have any real data that says, in a 40-year-old, it requires three grams of leucine, and in a 70-year-old, it requires four. Uh, it, still, it still seems to be three grams is the target. Yeah. Are there six differences, Don? Male versus female? That's a great question. If you ask um, Stu Phillips and, and some of those individuals, they would always express it relative to body weight. Yeah. So male and female differences there. Um, we always found it to be more of a threshold issue. If I give three grams of leucine to basically anyone between a hundred pounds and 300 pounds, I'll always get the same effect. Yeah, so I think it's a threshold number. They would tend to express it more and they probably work with larger athletes than I do, but, yeah. um, so there's some disagreement, there's some controversy. We just don't know that, yeah. but I've never seen I've never seen a case where three grams of leucine at a meal didn't work. Okay. If we're thinking about meals and a lot of the research has been done on, is there, is there a difference if you're having straight whey protein or you're sitting down to say a, a meal of ground beef and, you know, vegetables and whatnot, does that change sure. the amount of protein that, that you might yeah, that's need? That's a great that's a great question. I get, I get questions like that. In fact, I, I had a Twitter question about that yesterday. I think the issue is you have to flood the cell pools with leucine in a fairly quick order. And yeah. you need to, you need the leucine level to go from about a hundred micromolar to 300 in a fairly short time frame. So if you're using pure whey protein, it's pretty rapidly digested and your 23 grams of whey protein will max out leucine within 15 to 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Well, if you go into a mixed diet, like you're describing, especially higher fat, higher 
uh, fiber, things that would slow down digestion. Now you'll tend to prolong the curve. And so you, to your point, you probably need more protein in the meal to make mm. sure you get to that level. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would often recommend to people that if they're talking about mixed meals, that your threshold target ought to be 40 grams or something like that, yeah. because it is going to slow down some. Yeah. And the more vegetarian it is, the more slower it will get. Yeah. And so you might need 45 or more. Yeah. And is there value in additional sort of essential amino acid supplementation for people who just cannot eat that much? Because I get that a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. So work that we've done, Stu Phillips, Doug Patton Jones, we have all shown that if you have a low protein meal, say 15 grams, and you add leucine on top of it to get up to the three grams total, you'll have effect. You'll get, you'll get the look as if it was a 30 or 40 gram meal. Yeah. So you can basically supplement. So if I was a vegetarian, uh, I would definitely consider adding branch chain amino acids on top of some of my meals. Nice. Uh, I think that would be a good choice. We know that it will stimulate mTOR. We don't know anything in the long term. Does that? How long does protein synthesis run? Is it equal in terms of lean body mass? But we know that it will get the trigger going. Yeah. So it looks like a good thing to do. Yeah, no, that's such good advice, particularly because, uh, I mean, it's all context, right? Because I often see in my Instagram feed from people going, branch chain amino acids don't work. And I'm like, work for what? Like, yeah. what are you actually sort of talking about? Whereas you've really quite clearly described quite a good application of where they not only work, but they're going to be quite beneficial. Yeah, I, I mean, if you have a meal with 40 grams of protein in it and you put branch chain on, on top of it, it's not going to work. Yeah. yeah if yeah. you have, if you have three meals per day where you're getting 160 grams of protein, adding branch chain, that's not going to work. That's not what they do. They're a trigger to turn on mTOR. And, and until you get to the three grams of leucine, you won't trigger it. So then where can you do it? So Doug Patton Jones did it with bed rest, you know, hospitalized mm -hmm. Pete. He did it with elderly. Stu has done it. We did it in a number of animal studies. If you're below that threshold and you just add the branch chain amino, you will get to the threshold and stimulate protein synthesis. So there's absolutely no question that it works, but it only works when you're reaching the threshold. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard people, you know, I think one of the analogies is, you know, it's, it's like turning on a light switch. You, you know, once you turn it on, turning it on again, doesn't help, you know, it doesn't yeah. lights don't get brighter. <laughs> yeah. But, that's a great but, analogy. But if you don't, if your protein doesn't reach the leucine threshold, then muscle won't turn on. Yeah. Don, I've heard you speak about fasting and its utility for older adults or, well, not even older adults, sort of middle-age-ish people. So can you just share with us your thoughts on fasting? I've done a lot of fasting studies over the years. I've done a lot of them with animals and, and, and different kinds of uh, situations. And, and one of the things we know is that fasting causes dramatic loss of lean body mass. Mm. And when you're young, uh, you can recover from that pretty quickly. So there's a reason that the military uses 19 and 20 year olds is you can abuse them out in the field and they tend to recover. Yeah. But if you look at bed rest 
or starvation in an elderly person in a 40, 50, 60, 70 year old, when they lose lean body mass, it's almost impossible for them to get it back. Mm. So, you know, in general, I don't like fasting. I mean, I think calorie control is critical. So time restricted feeding, you know, only eating two meals a day, eating in a narrow window. I think those all may be legitimate approaches to restricting calorie intake, but the idea of fasting for 36, 48, 72 hours, I think is a huge disadvantage and a huge risk for a 60 or 70 year old. I just don't think, I think the muscle loss is permanent. And I don't think that without very careful resistance exercise, you can come back from that. Yeah. What about in that sort of 40 to 50 year old range? I think, that's the, I think that's the break point, And I don't really know. We know from a sarcopenia and osteoporosis standpoint that those things begin around 40, yeah. that we can measurably detect that in your fourth decade. So in my opinion, a 45 year old should not be fasting. Yeah. Yeah. I think the I think the issue of can they adequately recover muscle and bone mass from that fast is unclear. Yeah, and it's just basically too much of a risk in terms yeah. of protecting. I mean, we don't muscle. know that. I mean, do it once, okay. I guess that's okay, but um, there's a lot of theories of aging that what aging really is 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 intermittent sort of stresses that you get an injury or you're sick or you're in bed for a while. And each time that comes along, you lose mass and you can't recover from it. And so it's like a series of stepwise declines. We often characterize aging as kind of a linear process, but I'm not sure that's true. I think it's a stepwise process of stresses. Yeah. Yeah. Fasting is a stress. Yeah, completely. Don, if we think about the lower quality protein, the plant-based protein, what is your pick for the best quality plant-based protein that people who do follow and, and, and enjoy a sort of a vegetarianish approach, um, what should they be focusing on? Um, I, I think that the, the legumes uh, are, are by far the best. And so uh, some of those, and I, you know, I think you can mix and match. I think I think the future is going to be blended proteins. So what we're seeing right now is people want to say, well, pea protein's best or soy protein's best or something, you know, hemp, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I think what we're going to see is blended proteins. And and frankly, I mean, I'm in the process of actually creating a weight loss shake, and it's going to be a blended protein that is going to have both plant and animal proteins. And I think that is the future. We need to get beyond this emotional aspect that, oh, we have to be plant or we have to be veg- you know, carnivore or vegetarian. No, the, the issue is blended proteins. We need yeah. to have some sort of a blend of proteins that feature the best of the plant and the best of the animal to get the complementary nature we want. That'll yeah. give us the biggest impact for the fewest calories. Tell me more about this weight loss shake. If you can, or is that sort of under wraps until it comes out? Under wraps, but uh, we'll hopefully release it on a website in January. Oh, fantastic. Um, Don, one final question. What are your thoughts on collagen? We all have collagen. (laughs) (laughs) Short and sweet. Totally. Yeah. And the hype, I I suppose, around around collagen. I think collagen 
is still incredibly confusing to me. Uh, Stu Phillips and I routinely laugh about it as probably the poorest quality protein that either of us could ever dream up. It's totally (laughs) deficient in tryptophan. It's deficient in sulfur amino acids, leucine, uh, methionine. I mean, it is absolutely awful. But there are a lot of practical examples of where people seem to believe it works. Mm. It's been in use for a long time. And so then you look a little different, you know, a little deeper at it. And what you find is it's got some very unique amino acid mixtures. It's got a lot of glycine. It's got a lot of arginine. It's got proline and hydroxyproline, which are part of the connective tissue, which gives it its structure. But those aren't actually usable by the body. Once the amino acid is hydroxylated, which happens after collagen's made, it's what's called a post-translational modification. The body can't reuse those amino acids. So giving people hydroxyproline, there's no reason to believe that can ever get made into protein again. Yeah. In fact, it can't be. Um, but then you get into, what well, you know, can those amino acids actually do other things like stimulate growth hormone? or stimulate, you know, provide anti-inflammatory. And that's kind of where the research is right now is suggesting that maybe the glycine has a big effect on, on growth hormone stimulation, or maybe the arginine. But anyway, I am totally on the fence about collagen. I, the science doesn't tell me that it's beneficial but there's so many practical testimonials that make you keep scratching your head and say, well, maybe what we do know is that uh, it's pretty expensive. And if you have less than 10 grams a day, you'll probably never see a benefit. So it takes quite a bit and it's expensive to use. So once again, I'd much rather just simply have my meats and get my collagen that way than buying expensive stuff in a can. Yeah, no, I completely appreciate that sentiment. Um, And I did say that was my final question, but actually my final question, because I do love to know what my uh, nutrition guru, people who have really helped educate me over the years, I always want to know, well, what do they do? What does Don do? Don, what do you do with your diet? What do I do? Uh, well, I uh, get up every morning and have a protein shake. I practice a little bit of restricted timing. So I typically don't have my protein shake till 930 or even 10 o'clock. I frankly often try to work out in the middle of the day. So I won't eat much in the middle of the day mm-hmm. uh, at most maybe 15, 20 grams of protein, of which I might add branched chain amino acids to. Yeah. And then I will have a fairly large protein dinner, uh, 60 grams or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I'm relatively low in carbs, but not that. I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a competitive tennis player. I play at least four times a week. And I find that I just don't feel as good if I don't have 180 to 200 grams of carbs per day. What kind of so, carbs do you eat? Anything that I can get my hands on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly a fan of, of, of vegetables and fruits, but I definitely, you know, I eat um, breads and, and things like that. So, you know, I'm, nice. I'm, uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, chocolate chip cookies. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we won't hold that against you. Um, any supplements you take Don? So, you know, like I'm sorry, supplements. Yeah. Um, obviously we've talked about protein, but anything outside of that, that you might, that you take. Not, no, I don't actually. I, I'm definitely, 
a whole food person. Uh, I pay a lot of attention to line of origin. I want to know where my foods come from. I don't want processed foods. Um, Those are the kinds of things I uh, pay attention to. And, you know, maybe in the middle of winter, I'll take some extra vitamin C or zinc if I feel like I'm getting a cold or something, but in general, I don't take any supplements. Yeah, no. And um, from the looks of things, obviously, because we've been chatting for over an hour, it seems to be working for you. So that's awesome. Um, my, uh, my parents, my parents, both uh, my father lived to 97 and my mother lived to 102. So I also have pretty good genes, but <laughs> <laughs> that might well be important too. Um, Professor Lehman, thank you so much for your time. It is amazing. And I know that you are very active on Twitter, so people can find you there. And I'll pop some links into the show notes to your research as well and and also to the series that you do do with um dr lyon chatting all about this stuff on youtube and they're they're coming up all the time so you know it's such a um a good education portal as well yeah i'm glad you enjoy that she and i have fun doing it it's sort of we talked about it we we've done this for years just privately and we said why don't we share these conversations with the public i think they're useful so we've, yes. we've done a lot of them yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, you enjoy the rest of your Thursday. Just getting my time zones <laughs> right. And um, thank you, Don. You're welcome. All right, team. Hope you enjoyed that. I really did. He was just so generous with his time. And academics just want the information out there. So podcasts and the ability for me to interview him and then let you in on that conversation is such a great way to to be able to do that. So I'm so stoked to talk to him. And next week on the podcast, I'm really pleased that we get to bring back Fleur Cushman from Currens. So for those of you who have listened to the podcast since day one, you'll know that um, Fleur was on back in April of this year, where we talked a lot about the health benefits of currens. And next week, Fleur and I take a bit of a deeper dive into some of the more recent research to do with currens and the implication for recovery and performance for athletes. Whilst it is a an athletic study, is one of the ones we do a deep dive in, it certainly has application for everyone who enjoys being active or particularly who would like to get into that active space. That's next week. Until then team, you can find me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website mickeywillardin.com, which in addition to the recipe access portal, which I talked about earlier on in the show, you can sign up to my fat loss plans for men and women, my keto longevity plan for those of you who like a little bit of a reset every once in a while, my real food nutrition plan. All of these have menus, shopping lists, and all of the benefits as I mentioned with my recipe access portal, or get in contact for a one-on-one consultation. Whether or not you want a dietary overhaul or you just want my input on your already pretty awesome diet so that is on my website mickeywillardin.com until next week team have a great week see you later